So my name is Pete. I'm one of the elders here, um, and I have the privilege to preach this morning. So, but before we get into it, have a seat and let me pray for you. Father, we long to hear your voice. We need your voice. Would you speak to us today? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? We pray this in your name. Amen. How should the church deal with opposition? How do you be the church in the face of a context and a culture that's increasingly oppositional? Back in my first year of university, we're going back to the mid-90s here, I had decided I was going to have a lot of fun. I was going to get involved in everything that my residence was doing. But I had also decided I was not going to compromise my faith, my morality, or my ethics. So I, I, and that's exactly what I did. I attended every event that was going on in my residence on my floor, but I wasn't drinking. I wasn't getting drunk. And, and I just had a lot of fun. And about a month, two months in, one of my floor mates came to me and said, I notice you're not drinking. Is, is something wrong? Or, you know, is there some history in your family? And I'm like, no, it's because of my faith. And she thought that was really weird. And she's like, okay, well, what about this? And what about that? And so I started she's asking all these questions about all kinds of different ethics or morality or how I'm choosing to live my life. And then there's other people that are kind of joining in, and there's like three or four or five of us, and they're all asking me these questions. And at the end of it, they're like, that's weird. But the other thing they said was, that moral standard's too high. We could not live up to that standard. You must look down on us. And I had to spend a lot of time saying, no, I don't look down on you. I don't judge you. The only reason why I live this weird way is because of Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, why would you live this way? But the common consensus was that morality, that ethical standard's too high. Those same morals, those same standards today on the university campus That is not a high moral standard. That's a low standard. What you get met with today is, ooh, you you need to be careful. That's kind of dangerous. You know, denying yourself in those sort of ways, that's repressive. You might be stunting your own emotional, spiritual, physical well-being and development by living that way. It's actually a low standard. That's repressive. And if you think anyone else should live that way, then you're oppressive. And that's a, you're the problem in the world today. What's fascinating is that same standard over the course of 20-some years is viewed completely different. The dominant narrative, the dominant values have shifted in the West and in Canada. And it's increasingly oppositional to the gospel. 
So how do we be the church in this environment? Well, that's what I think the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians is about. So I'm going to read through it, and then we'll kind of go section by section. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 16. So you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you the gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we, were also, and we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone, in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. So here we see in the first two verses, we see the opposition. So Paul talks about, um, there's this, we dared to bring the gospel to you in the face of opposition. So um, with the Thessalonians, they experienced opposition. But then he also references back to this thing in Philippi where they suffered and were treated outrageously. So it makes you wonder, well, what happened in Philippi? And we actually get the story of that in Acts 16. So there, Paul and Silas are, are preaching the word in Philippi, and there's this slave fortune teller that keeps interrupting them and badgering them and bothering them. And so Paul actually casts the spirit out of the fortune teller. 
And the owners get quite upset because this impacts their, their business and the economy. And so Paul and Silas are stripped, beaten, flogged severely, and then imprisoned. They face some strong opposition. This is also the story of the earthquake and the jail breaking open and the jailer being saved and his family. But what we notice here is the strong opposition to the gospel. I was intrigued by what it states in Acts 16 about the charges that are brought against them. So in Acts 16, 20 to 21, it says, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and practice. They're advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and practice. The gospel starts to mess with the customs and the practice in our day. We experience that today. The ways of living out the gospel actually put us in direct contrast to the customs and the practice, the dominant values and beliefs of our day. This is the context that was going on in the early church in the, as Paul brings his message to the Gentiles. And it's similar stuff that's happening for us today. So what are we supposed to do about this? So Paul goes on in verse 3 to 7. He says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God who tests our heart. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like children among you. So some scholars would say there's um, some slander against Paul and Silas because we notice in this, Paul's like, no, we were not like this. We were not like this. We were not like this. That he's actually responding to accusations against them. Other scholars actually point out this is a very common way of, of creating an argument. We see it not only in, we see it in all kinds of literature of that day. That their format is, I want you to follow my example, not X, but Y. So some would say, Paul's just here actually saying, here's how you're supposed to be. Do not be like this. Follow our examples. Our example was we were not like this. Be like this. I don't know exactly which is true, or you know, some would say actually both are happening. The interesting thing here is I think Paul actually puts his finger on what one of the major temptations is when we face opposition. The major temp- one of the major <laughs> temptations is that we would please people, not God. In the church, there's this temptation to like, in the face of the opposition to, um, if we could dial it down a little bit. 
And usually this starts from a good place. It's like we want people to get the message and the goodness of, of the gospel. So let's, let's talk about it in ways that are relevant. Let's, what's the language of the day and how do we communicate the goods of the gospel in a way that makes sense? But then it starts to, we massage it a bit more. The places where we feel the opposition, we try to like, well, if we could just kind of hide that to the background and not talk about it. Or if we could just disregard that part of the scripture, we could do away with that altogether. And what starts to happen is we, we mess with the message. We start masking. We start kind of tricking. We pull a bit of a bait and switch on people. We use flattery in a way to try to win people to this thing. And lo and behold, we start erasing part of the actual message of God. Last week, Derek talked about wrath and how it's wrath today to talk about that. That, that, that doesn't feel good to do it in our context. And so we kind of, if we could just relegate it to the side or if we could just eliminate it altogether, wouldn't that be great? But what we start to do is actually mess with the message because we want to please people, not God. And so Paul here is saying, no, you need to hold true to the gospel just as we did. We were treated terribly in Philippi. We came to you in the face of strong opposition and we did not mess with the message. We told you the truth about who God is and what he's like. Follow our example. So the first thing in the face of opposition, we need to remain true to the gospel. Paul goes on in verse 7 to 12. And he says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Sure, you, you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believe. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of the gospel a worthy of God who calls you into the, his kingdom and glory. Here, I think what we start to see, though, is it's not just about um, that you hold truth, hold to the truth of the gospel. It's how you hold it. It's not just the position that you actually stand on. It's your posture often think about our convictions about the truth of the gospel is like bones. It's like a skeleton. That they're the hard structure on which everything hangs on. It helps everything do what it's supposed to do. And without it, you're just kind of a blob. So the structure and the bones are important. But in the animal kingdom, there's two kinds of skeletons. You have an endoskeleton, is what we have, 
where the skeleton is inside you. The hard stuff is inside you and everything else hangs on it. And the soft stuff is on the outside, particularly here. Um, the other skeleton is an exoskeleton. The hardness is on the outside and it holds all the pieces in play. And so that's where you have crabs and lobsters. The interesting thing is when we face opposition, we tend to actually wear, when we don't give in in our convictions, we start wearing them like an exoskeleton. We wear the gospel like armor. And what happens is all the hard stuff and prickly and cold is on the outside. And nobody can get to the goods. Paul here does something completely different. Here we notice there's two main analogies he uses for his time. One is a nursing mother. The other is as a caring father. These images are tender, warm, nurturing, empathetic, compassionate. Here we have this example of Paul who's like, no, we did not mess with the content of the gospel. And yet the way he lives it out with the Thessalonians is warm and tender and loving. He's not compromising on the gospel at all. But he's wearing it like an endoskeleton. And it's the warmth and the love in the way that he engages people. Do we have compassion on our culture? When we think about the opposition, do we have actually compassion on them? Are we empathetic? How, how is the dominant way of living in this world working for us? So if you ask me in a short bit of time here, if I could describe the dominant view, it's that you have to live your best life. And the way to live your best life is this path of self-discovery, self-acceptance, and then self-expression. So you have to go deep within yourself, figure out who you truly are. Then you have to accept that that is who you are and own it. But it's not just enough to do that. Now you have to live it out and express it. If you don't live it out, you're repressing the thing that you've discovered deep inside. That is the path. How's that working for us? Most studies would suggest that as a society, we're more anxious than ever before, more depressed, and more lonely. We're sold that this is the way to live your life, and anything that inhibits that process of self-discovery, self-acceptance, self-expression. Any people that try to tell you otherwise, they're toxic, you need to cut them out. Any system, um, belief, a religion that tries to inhibit in that, that process is part of the problem and must be removed. The problem is then you're left to do this thing completely on your own. Nobody can go deep inside you and know who you truly are. Only you can do that. 
And the only thing other people can do is encourage you to do that. But as soon as they start labeling what you are and how you should live, they're actually part of the problem and you cut them out. The other problem is this life is all we got. This is when you got to do it. So if you haven't actually discovered who you truly are yet, you're behind. You've only got X number of years left to live your best life. And the whole system is pressurized. You got to find your way on your own by yourself now. And you wonder why we're anxious, depressed, lonely. If we have to be honest, we struggle with this too. Because the culture is not just something out there. It's something we live and breathe and are a part of. We're a product of our culture and it impacts us. This fall... I was uh, struggling with some stress and anxiety in a different level than in previous years. And there's all kinds of different factors around that. Um, Some of it is we're trying to rebuild the campus ministry. I work with a national campus ministry. And um, uh, under the effects of COVID and online learning, it it really impacted our work. Who would have thought that students who do school online all the time would not want to join a Bible study after that online? But, you know. Um, So there's this pressure to rebuild this ministry. There's changes happening in the organization and kind of want to prove myself in that sort of way. But ultimately, I think there's this thing we're told by the culture around us that our actions matter most. What we do matters most. And so I'm feeling this pressure because I need the right vision and the right strategy to enact that vision and the right key performance indicators to track whether we're on track with the strategy and are we going astray? And what's, I'm feeling the pressure of that. And what I need to go is to Jesus and be like, okay, I'm feeling this. What's going on? And he's like, well, the problem is you're trying to do my job. You're taking on too much responsibility. Your job is to be faithful. My job is to do the miracles. Um, And more than that, he had to say some things about me. I love you. I know you. I called you. I know what you can and can't do. And I've put you in this place. Trust me. Trust that I know what I'm doing. I didn't do this to set you up to fail. You see, the culture around us is preaching a way of living that doesn't actually deliver. And we, we have a message of hope. Do we have compassion? And when we share that, we can say to the culture around us, oh, we struggle with all the same things. But we are not alone. We believe in a God who knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We believe in a God who loves us and wants us to be our true versions of ourselves, and he wants to help us do it. We believe that we can be reconciled, reconciled with ourselves, 
reconciled with others, reconciled with the world, because we've been reconciled with God. We can be at home in ourselves, at home with one another, at home in this world, because we have a home in Jesus. Now, it doesn't erase all the problems, but we're not on our own to figure this out. We have God helping us, and we have the community that can help us. We have a message of hope. The the interesting thing here, too, is um, what Paul says in verse 8. So he's got the language of a nursing mother and a caring father, and then he says, Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We're not just supposed to share the content of the gospel. We're supposed to share our lives and the way the gospel is actually at work in our own lives now. So here's the summary up to this point. In the face of opposition, we're called to please God, not people. Do not compromise on the truth of the gospel. But we're supposed to have compassion on the culture around us. We need to share the truth of the gospel and reconciliation. But we're also supposed to share the story of how God is at work in our lives. Next, in verses 13 to 16, Paul kind of shifts where he was using himself and Silas as an example. Now he's talking about the Thessalonians, and he says, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last." So I I think Paul starts by thanking them for something, and then he goes on a bit of a tangent here about the suffering. And I'm just going to speak to a couple of things quickly, um, try and wrap things up. Um, I think there's two important points here. He talks about the suffering that they're going through, um, the church in Judea has gone through, Jesus and the prophets. And then as he talks about the wrath and the sins um, reaching a limit, I think in the face of opposition, not only do we have a temptation to mess with the message, we have a temptation to kind of wear our convictions like armor. I think we also have a temptation to start accounting for the wrongs that are done to us. And I think we also have a temptation to think that something's gone wrong. 
So when we face opposition, it could be like, oh, something's desperately wrong. We, might have, we must have got it wrong for this opposition to exist. And I think one of the things Paul does here in the end is says, no, it's actually par for the course. You're experiencing suffering from your own people, just like me and Silas have, just like the Judean church, just like Jesus himself, just like the prophets. You experiencing opposition from your own people, that's kind of how this thing works. It's not a sign that something's gone wrong. It's a sign that you're doing something right. And then the next thing is this this idea that we want to take account. These wrongs are done to us. We want them to be held account. We want it to matter. We want justice here. And God says, oh, don't worry. I see everything. I am accounting for it. And there's a limit. It's not going on forever. At some point, I'm going to say enough. So I think what Paul is doing here is just like, that's not your job. One, you're on the right track, but it's not your job to account. It's not your job to count sins. It's not your job to handle wrath. That's all mine and I see all and know all. Your job in the face of opposition is not please people, but please God. Have compassion on the people in our culture. Do you not see we're all lost? Share the truth of the gospel and share how God is at work in you. So what do we need as the church to live this out? Well, I think the clue is in um, verse 13. Paul says, and we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. It's, it's not just a human word. It's not just human ideas. It's the actual voice of God. And actually, if we go back to Chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. That what we need is for God to be at work in our lives. We need a living story, not just an idea, but that actually comes in power in the Holy Spirit. We need to remember the ways that God has met us. And we need to tell those stories to one another. We need new stories of how God is coming into our lives and helping us wrestle with the things we face. And we need to tell those stories. Our greatest apologetic in this day and age in a face of opposition is that God is helping us live this life. There's good news. There's a better way to live. The worship team can come back up, and I'm just going to close us in prayer. Father, did we feel the opposition increasing? 
and we have all kinds of temptations to, um, to modify the message and kind of hide the offensive parts. We have a temptation to wear our beliefs like armor to protect us. We have a temptation to actually account for all the wrongs that are done and kind of think we have to fight for justice. God, would you help us? Would you help us to um, hold true to the gospel? Would you help us to see and have compassion and a heart for the people around us? And God, would you give us a living story? Would you meet us this day? Would you remind us of the ways that you've been at work in our lives? And would you help us not only share the truth of the gospel, but to share our lives as well. We pray this in your name. Amen.